Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. We've got Jeremy back. Yay. So we're back with new episodes. Ooh, cheers. Speaking of cheers, this is going to be our last episode before St. Patrick's Day. Oh, yeah. And if you remember, last year we created a drinking game for listening to America the Bazaar on St. Patrick's Day. Ah. Do you remember the rules? I have I <laughs> No. Not. I think I'm going to have to change them this year. Yeah. But if anybody wants to play along for St. Patrick's Day, the rules are sip every time I mispronounce a name, <laughs> drink every time you hear the words weird, bizarre, or crazy, drink when Jeremy brings up Nickelback. You haven't brought up Nickelback in an episode for a long time, so I might have to change that rule <laughs> to something else. I mean, it's still a good rule. I still... Like, watch a lot of Nickelback YouTube videos and yeah. listen to a lot of Nickelback, so... No, Nickelback is still definitely a part of your life. Yes. You just don't talk about it in the podcast yes. anymore. I've internalized it because people keep uh, trying to shame me. Yeah. But you know what? I need to I need to be vocal about my, my passions. Sip if you got the president quiz right and chug if you got it wrong. <laughs> and oh, then man. finish your drink when you hear Stay Weird America. <laughs> So I'll repost those rules on our social media, but just in case anybody feels like drinking while listening to our podcast, not while you're driving. If you listen to this podcast while you're driving, we do not recommend drinking. Absolutely. Or maybe while you're at work as well. <laughs> if you happen there's to- some, There's some soft rules. There's soft, yeah. Well, the, the driving <laughs> like, thing, I feel like, is a hard rule. Yeah. But like on St. Patrick's Day at my old job, like that was- like, probably one of the least productive days. Oh, for sure. Remember that? Yeah, well, when you're... The green keg that yeah, they have? when your company provides you a keg of green beer, I yeah. think it's okay to drink. But I mean, even before that, that official, like, company function started, people were always, like, milling about the building, like, drinking beers and stuff. Oh, yeah. So, this week's presidential trivia is... It's kind of relevant, because I don't know if you heard, but one of Biden's German shepherds bit a staffer. Oh. Yeah. I did not hear that. Yeah. Major Biden, the German shepherd that they <laughs> adopted. Apparently, he bit a staffer. Uh, I believe the staffer is okay in minimal injuries. But uh, so both the dogs have returned to Delaware for the time he's, being and are no longer at the White House. He major Biden his ass. <laughs> Get it like bit? Yeah, I get it. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, presidential trivia this week is, which president's dog, that's not Biden, which president's dog pantsed the French ambassador and the dog had to leave the White House? Mm. I feel like that's something Bush would train his dogs to do. Bush? Yeah. Against the... <laughs> Against the French? Yeah. Is this when the whole Freedom Fries thing is going down, too? <laughs> exactly. You're saying W, Bush, right? Yeah, yeah, W. Yeah, W. It wasn't W, but I like your guess. <laughs> the answer will be at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. Maybe if I just keep guessing Bush, you'll have a... Eventually, I'll, I just feel like Bush is just so out there that yeah, I don't do like a lot of... There's so many trivia. Yeah. Gordon Hirabayashi was born in Seattle, Washington on April 23, 1918, to Japanese immigrant parents. 
He was raised within the Mukyokai Christian movement, which was a Japanese Christian sect that was heavily influenced by the Quaker sect and held pacifist ideals. After graduating from Auburn Senior High School, he began attending the University of Washington in 1937 and joined several student organizations, including the YMCA, since he was not allowed to join any groups on Greek Row because they had a white Gentiles-only policy. Hmm. While in school, he continued to grow in his belief of pacifism and joined the University Friends Meeting, which was the school's local Quaker group. Mm -hmm. On December 7th, 1941, Gordon was outside visiting with friends after a friends worship meeting. One of his friends, who had been listening to the radio, broke the news of the bombing at Pearl Harbor. With America officially entering into World War II, Gordon immediately applied for his conscientious objector status with his friend. His friend was sent to a civilian public service camp for conscientious objectors. Kind of like we talked about in episode 64, Human Guinea Pigs. Right. Shortly after, Gordon also received orders to report to a civilian public service camp. But then the orders were canceled the day before he was scheduled to leave when the Selective Service reclassified all draft-age persons that were of Japanese descent as aliens that were ineligible for enlistment. Hmm. So that he even had, like, a, a huge going-away party with all of his friends. Right. And then he got told that he, America didn't was want Was ineligible. Yeah. Ineligible. Yeah. Weird. On February 19th, 1942... President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which authorized the Secretary of War and other military commanders to evacuate all persons deemed a threat from military areas to relocation centers that were located further inland. The entire West Coast was deemed a military area. That following March, Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt of the Western Defense Command issued several proclamations that pertain to the executive order. Proclamations 1 and 2 designated Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, and Utah all as military areas. Hmm. That's a huge chunk of the United States. Very large chunk. Yeah. Like probably a third of the landmass? Probably. Pretty close? Close to that. Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe not quite a third. In the lower lower 48 at least. Maybe a quarter. Yeah. Yeah. Of the lower 48. Yeah. Yeah. Nine states. Right? Seven? Eight. Eight. <laughs> right, right in between there. <laughs> what, they didn't include Arizona? No, Arizona's in there. Oh. Wyoming wasn't included? Wyoming was oh, not okay. in there. Yeah. There's just not enough people there to... <laughs> <laughs> to worry about it? <laughs> There's like three times as many cows in Wyoming as people. At least, I feel like that's yeah. even That like, might be low. an understatement. Yeah. yeah. Proclamation 3 created a curfew for all Italian, German, or Japanese aliens and persons of Japanese ancestry to abide by an 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew, and that at all other times, all such persons shall only be at their place of residence or employment or traveling between those places or within a distance of not more than five miles from their place of residence. Hmm. That's very... I feel like that's very broad. It is very, very broad. Kind of, right? I mean, like, just you can't be outside five miles of your house. And starting at 8 p.m., like, that's, I feel like that's really early mm-hmm. for a curfew. Yeah. Eh, I don't know. I feel like that's pretty standard time for a curfew. You think so? Yeah. Like, sundown, basically, to yeah, sunrise, yeah, kind yeah, of? Yeah, 
Forbade. Not that I agree with it, but... Right. Yes. Okay. Proclamation Continue. 4 forbade all persons of Japanese ancestry from leaving military area 1, which was the West Coast Line, until they were ordered to be relocated to an improved location. So even if they were like, oh, okay, we're in a military area, we should probably leave. leave. But if you were of Japanese ancestry, even if you were a United States citizen, mm-hmm. if you're at least 116th Japanese... You are not allowed to leave that area. Wow. You can even choose to just where relocate you would yourself. Go. Yeah. Can't move to Kansas. Right. When the curfew from the proclamations were imposed in Seattle, Gordon initially obeyed, not wanting to make any trouble. Gordon's white friends volunteered to help him keep track of the time so he wouldn't be caught outside during curfew. Every day when it got close to 8 p.m., one of his friends would say, Hey, Gordy, it's five minutes to eight. And he would start running towards his dorm room. One day, after his friend informed... Yeah, but he's got a five-mile... Circ- like a, that's what I don't get with this curfew. No, it's five miles outside of the curfew. So between 6 a.m. and 8 p.m., he can still only be five miles outside oh, of his residence. It is like... Oh, so even when... Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, it makes way more sense now. Yeah. So he has to be home at those hours, and outside of those hours, he can only be within five miles gotcha. of his place of residence gotcha. or at work. So it's very, very strict. Okay. I Never mind. I take back my other statement. It's very strict. I thought it was like, oh, after eight, as long as you're within five miles of your home. No. You need to be in your house at eight. Um, so one day after his friend informed him of the time, he began running home when all of a sudden he just stopped and thought to himself, why the hell am I running back? Am I an American? And if I am, why am I running back and nobody else is? Mm-hmm. Gordon was finally fed up with being referred to with being treated as a lesser than American citizen, even less than that because some of his friends that were Canadian citizens were still out after curfew. Mm-hmm. So he turned and went back to his friends at the library. Seeing Gordon show back up, his friends were shocked. But Gordon just said, well, you're here. What gives you any more right to stay here than me? And so they're like, okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> and they were like, well, I guess we're not going to turn you in. Right. From then on, Gordon continued to ignore the curfew and even made it a point to attend extracurriculars around campus that occurred after 8 p.m. Right. So even more so than just like, oh, I'm not going to obey. He's like, I'm going to defy it openly. Mm -hmm. Soon after, though, signs began to appear on campus and all around Seattle that stated district by district, starting March 24th, anyone in that district of Japanese descent had six days to dispose of almost all their possessions and pack only that which can be carried by the family or individual, including bedding, toiletries, clothing, eating utensils, etc. The government did give the option to store or ship some possessions, but it would do so only at the sole risk of the owner. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, we'll <laughs> ship your things. Oh, no, it didn't show up. Yeah. They just resold it. Oh, yeah, or like, just... that sounds like the biggest scam. Or just tossed it yeah. in a dumpster yeah. or lit it on fire. Yeah, biggest scam in the world. Yeah. so, like, nobody really trusted the government. Yeah. Especially yeah. when they're like, it's at your own risk. And they're like, oh, no, then we're never getting our yeah. stuff back. Yeah. So many began to ask friends and neighbors to keep their things while others sold as much as they could in a short amount of time. Gordon knew that his time was limited before the district that the university belonged in would require him to be relocated, but it was one of the later districts. So he didn't register for the next quarter, and instead he went and helped families move their things and drive them to the Poilup Paragraph. Tell me how it said. If you're playing the (laughs) Mighty Shrinking game. This is your 
That was you. Can you can you try again for our listeners so they get two two sips? No, just tell me. Pull up. I love it. Uh, now that you've said it out loud like that, I'm, you can't say it right. Yeah. Puyala. Puyala. How many times are we gonna get our listeners to drink? I need to phone a friend. Okay. Anyways, the fairground. Yeah. <laughs> You're from Seattle. Puyala. You, know, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. How do you? How's it spelled? P U Y A L L U P. P U Y A L L U P. Yeah. 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 Um, there he would leave the families behind barbed wire, not knowing how long they would be there for. About two weeks before Gordon was due to be relocated, friends came to say their goodbyes to him. This crushed Gordon, and he couldn't understand why he should just accept that he should be sent to an internment camp for being of Japanese descent. Again, he's like, why do like, why are all these people coming and crying and mm-hmm. saying goodbye to me? It's just because I'm Japanese. Like, right. I did nothing yeah. wrong. Yeah. Wasn't flying a plane on December 7th. Yeah, exactly. I've not been committing espionage. Like, Yeah, he's like, I've literally done nothing but go to class. Been just a great student. Yeah. Gordon went to meet with a lawyer that he had met at one of his Quaker meetings named Arthur Barnett and asked him about the legal implications of defying the relocation order. After that, Gordon wrote out a statement that explained all the reasons he was going to refuse the relocation and planned on turning himself into the FBI along with his statement. Washington State Senator Mary Farquharson. I don't know if that's right. Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people do know. I just love that you enunciate everything. <laughs> Phonics. Raushk. <laughs> Like I say, it's your last name. The way you read it, Farquharson. Farquharson, which sounds Dutch. Farquharson, Far- especially if you say it like that. I don't know what that is. Farquharson. Anyways, she heard about Gordon's plan to defy the relocation order and met with him. Mary asked Gordon if he would feel comfortable being used as a test case to fight against the proclamations in court, and Gordon agreed. First, they asked the ACLU to take Gordon's case on, but were informed that the National Board did not want to take his case. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think they just thought that there's just... The wartime and... Yeah. The just, government it just has wasn't a pretty chance. broad authority during that time. And yeah, exactly. Especially when you're now technically living in a military area. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of silly to just broadly state eight states as a military area. Right. In my opinion. So, instead, they organized the Gordon Hirabayashi Defense Committee. (laughs) And then got some lawyers to join. Right, right. The day after Gordon's deadline to turn himself in for relocation came and went. Gordon arrived at the FBI office to turn himself in. When he arrived, he shook hands with Special Agent Francis V. Mannion and introduced the agent to his lawyer, Arthur Bennett. After making some small talk... I don't know if the agent thought was going on yeah, with this probably, like young yeah. Japanese guy like yeah, turning himself in. Yeah, hello, agent. This yeah. is my lawyer, yeah. and this is like he's not even saying that he's. You're just like talking about the weather, and then he was like, "Oh, hey, here's a paper. Here's my statement." Yeah. And then the statement was headed with the title, "Why I refuse to register for evacuation." After reading the statement, Agent Mannion asked Gordon if he understood that he risked being in prison for a year for defying the order. Gordon said yes, he understood. 
and he still wasn't going to register. <laughs> Agent Mannion then drove Gordon to the registration center to give him one last chance to register, but Gordon refused, so they returned to the FBI office. Once there, Mannion talked to the U.S. attorney about what to do. So, no, I feel like this guy was like had some kind of compassion right. towards Gordon. Yeah, he's, like, he's like, I get it. You don't want to turn yourself in. This is that seems a little ridiculous to me, but I'm just the. Yeah. So yeah. he's like, let me see what I can do. Let me yeah. go talk to the U.S. attorney. See if I can get finagle, get you off finagle, or yeah, finagle like a deal or something. Yeah. However, the U.S. attorney filed criminal charges against Gordon for violating the evacuation order and for violating curfew. Because hmm. he was brought to his office after 8 p.m. No, it was actually oh, because... Oh, outside his five miles? <laughs> it was actually... That would be, like, a real bummer. But it was actually because Gordon had brought his diary with him. They confiscated the diary, and in it, Gordon had written about all the times that he disobeyed curfew. Oh. And so they used that to charge Man, him with... If you're going to commit a crime, like, don't, don't leave evidence. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, that's a prosecutor's wet dream right there. <laughs> right. You need to show up with Signed, it. Signed, Gordon. Like they, they, didn't, they didn't even have to go, like, <laughs> Looking you know, for it. Yeah. yeah, go to your dorm room to find it. No, yeah, it was just right there. Gordon was booked into the King County Jail, and within a couple of days, he showed up in court for his arraignment, along with his lawyers. Gordon pled not guilty to both counts, and bail was set at $500. Gordon asked his lawyers if he paid the $500, could he just walk out and go home like everyone else? That's what happens usually when you pay bail. Mm -hmm. So his lawyers were like, we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> <So> do it. <laughs> See what happens. So they asked the judge, who said no, that if he paid bail, he would have to go to the relocation camp. So Gordon's like, okay, I'll stay in jail. Right. Gordon was kept in jail from May until October, when his court trial was finally set. While waiting for trial, Gordon's lawyers filed several motions requesting that his case be dropped because he was never given due process and was only subject to these orders on the grounds of ancestry, which was outside of constitutional guarantees. Judge Lloyd Black dismissed the motions, saying that individual rights should not be permitted to endanger all of the constitutional rights of the whole citizenry during wartime and continued saying that the Japanese are unbelievably treacherous and wholly ruthless and that the curfew and evacuation orders were reasonable protections against the diabolically clever use of infiltration tactics of the Japanese. Hmm. So his judge is super racist. Yeah. And super skeptical. Like, every person of Japanese descent is a spy. They're all sleeper cells. Like, yeah. come on, man. Like, and, people, <laughs> yeah. people literally have been migrating to this country before the fountain, you know. Right. Creation of this country. That's how this, that's what this whole country is yeah. founded on. <laughs> but then you also have to think at this time, um, Japanese immigrants weren't allowed to become citizens ever. The only reason Gordon is a citizen is because he was born in America. Right. But his parents were never even allowed the option, yeah, to become naturalized citizens. Hmm. So there is already Japanese. Was a racism. Bias. Bias in America before World War II started. And then Pearl Harbor just, like, made it, like, multiplied it by, like, a thousand right. in America. Gordon's not, he's already not getting a fair shake, and it's not even his trial yet. Right. Yeah. During his trial, Gordon admitted to intentionally violating their curfew and evacuation order, but he said he did it because he should be given the privileges of a citizen under the Constitution, regardless of ancestry or race. 
Gordon's father was brought in by the prosecution from the California internment camp he was staying in to be used as a witness. The prosecuting attorney questioned Gordon's father about where he was born and if Gordon was his son. The prosecuting attorney used Gordon's father's accent in less than perfect English to remind the jury that Gordon and his family had ties to the Japanese enemies and said to the jury, if we don't win this war with Japan, there will be no trial by jury. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Super dramatic. When it was time for the jury to deliberate, Judge Black instructed them that military orders are valid and enforceable laws, and that they were to return a finding of guilty. Which... Are those really instructions? Yeah. I mean, yes, those are instructions, but it's not really like... Your judge isn't supposed to tell you that. Right. The jury only took ten minutes to deliberate because the judge told them... What, what, the outcome, was, what the outcome yeah. was that he wanted. Yeah, so they basically walked to the room, sat down, said, raise your hand if you said, think Said, who has guilty. to go to the bathroom? Yeah, exactly. Jeez. <laughs> and then went back in. Jeez. So yeah, so they returned with guilty verdicts for both charges. Judge Black sentenced Gordon to 30 days of jail for each charge. 60 days. So a total of 60 days that were to be served... Consecutively. Consecutively. Not concurrently. Not concurrently. Gordon had heard that if he was sentenced to 90 days or longer, he could serve on a work camp outdoors instead of staying in a jail cell the whole time, which he's been doing. He's tired of the county jail. Oh, he so wants they, to at least they, go they outside. Him, they haven't given him, like, I don't, I don't know what's called, like, credit for day served. Yeah, they did. That's why the judge only gave him 30 days each after whatever time he's already served. Oh, that was in, dish, in addition to the that time was, already served. That was in addition to time already uh, served. Okay. So Gordon asks Judge Black if he would give him, or if he would add 15 days to each count so that the total sentence was 90 days. Hmm. That he can then go to a word camp. Judge Black said he could accommodate Gordon's request and instead would make it three months on each count. So. So <laughs> don't ever ask a judge if you can add time to your sentence. Right. Because they then, they'll add some time. Right. After serving four months out of his six-month sentence, Judge Black allowed to let Gordon be transferred to a jail in Spokane, which was outside of the evacuation order area. Then Gordon could post bail and not have to report to a relocation camp. Hmm. So he never got to go to a work camp, but he did get to go to Spokane, and he got to post bail and just be like any other person on bail. Gordon's lawyer immediately appealed the convictions after Gordon's trial. Okay. While waiting for his case to be heard in the U.S. Court of Appeals... And before he got sent to Spokane. Yes, and before he got sent to Spokane. Okay, okay. While waiting for his case to be heard in the U.S. Court of Appeals, two other cases that challenged the curfew and evacuation orders were also sent to the Court of Appeals. So it was decided to hear all three cases together. The U.S. Court of Appeals first met for argument of the three cases on February 19th, 1943, the one-year anniversary of Executive Order 9066. After five weeks, the appellate judges decided to send the cases to the Supreme Court without decision under the procedure of certification of questions, saying that the question of whether this exercise of the war power can be reconciled with traditional standards of personal liberty and freedom guaranteed by the Constitution is most difficult. So basically they're like, uh, we don't yeah, know. <laughs> yeah, this is this is probably not 
<laughs> we don't want to answer this question. This we know got, it's going to come to you anyways. This has got Supreme Court written all over it, right, so why don't you right. guys just take this? Right. When the Supreme Court convened on May 10th, 1943, it was only to hear Gordon's case. The other two had been sent back to the Court of Appeals on technical issues. Hmm. So right now, evacuation order and curfew is all riding on Gordon's case. After hearing arguments, the Supreme Court found that President Roosevelt's order and the implementation of the curfew was constitutional, stating that in time of war, residents having ethnic affiliations with an invading enemy Mm. may be a greater source of danger than those of a different ancestry. However, the court completely ignored the part of his case that had to deal with the relocation issue and just didn't give an opinion. Yeah. Yeah. They just literally were like, and we're just not going to talk about that because we mm-hmm. we also do not know <laughs> right. what to do about that. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think if you don't know what to do about it, then it's unconstitutional. Right. I mean, it's probably, right? Yeah. Like, if, that, like, if you're avoiding a question that bad, that much, like, hmm, you should probably like, go with your gut. Probably, yeah. It probably isn't right. It's like they... They wanted to say it was constitutional, but there was no way that they could like but, wrap, yeah, like create an argument for that yeah. that was sound. And so they're like, "Well, we're just going to ignore it." Yeah. After this, the beauties of constitutional law. Yeah. After the Supreme Court decision came down, a couple of FBI agents found Gordon in Spokane to take him back into custody to finish out his sentence. The agents planned on having Gordon finish his sentence in the federal part of the Spokane County Jail. Gordon objected, saying that 90 days was too long to spend in a county jail and that they needed to send him to a federal work camp. Mm. Again, he's like, I don't want to go back to jail. Right. Let me work outside. Right. The agents told Gordon that the only federal work camp that they could send him to was in Tucson, Arizona. However, they didn't have any money to send him there, so he'd have to finish his sentence in Spokane. Gordon then asked, what if I go on my own to Tucson? The agents said, Sure. (laughs) That's what he wanted to do. They would write a letter for him that he could show in case anyone gave him any trouble. And they'd let the work camp in Tucson know that he was coming. On his way. Yep. So he's literally just going to travel there. Yeah. Hmm. On his own. Hmm. Not wanting to pay any money to go to prison, Gordon began his journey to Arizona by hitchhiking. It took Gordon two weeks to make it to Tucson that included stopping in Idaho to visit his parents and in Salt Lake City to visit some friends. When he got to Tucson, Gordon went to the U.S. Marshal's office and explained that he was reporting to serve out his sentence. The Marshal looked at the letter the agent had given Gordon and then said, We don't have any record for you here. You might as well turn around and go back. You're free to go. Gordon was like, Okay, but here, here's the thing. It took me two weeks to get here. <laughs> I don't want to just start hitchhiking back, get halfway back home, then you find my paperwork, and then you send, like, FBI agents to come get me, or then I have to come back. So why don't you just keep looking for my paperwork, or let me just stay? Let's just just start this time here. Yeah. The paperwork will catch up. Yeah. So the marshal was like, okay, if that's how you feel about it, go, there's an air-conditioned movie theater down the road. Why don't you go watch a movie or two and come back later and we'll talk about it. So he phoned him. When Gordon went back after his movie, the marshal said that he did indeed find Gordon's paperwork and that he was to fulfill his sentence at the work camp. Hmm. After he finished out his sentence there, he was given a bus ticket back to Spokane. 
So you didn't have to hitchhike. Nice. Tucson was more well-funded with the work camp. Apparently. After a month of being free, Gordon received a questionnaire from the draft board. Along with all the usual questions that belonged on the Selective Service questionnaire, there were also additional questions that demanded that the person filling out agree to serve in the military and renounce any loyalty to the Emperor of Japan. Hmm. Gordon's like, well, this is a weird questionnaire, weird yeah. question on the questionnaire. Knowing that he had received a special draft questionnaire just because he was of Japanese descent, Gordon wrote to his draft board to ask if they were sending the same questionnaire to all Americans or only those of Japanese ancestry. When he never got a response, Gordon sent the questionnaire back unfilled with a response that stated that the questions were a form of racial discrimination and that as an American citizen, Gordon could not support that and he would not be filling it out. Gordon spent plenty of time in jail. He's been dealing with this. He yeah. is not about <laughs> Just to rolling mess over, with rolling it now. Over, rolling over and complying. Yeah. Good for him. A short time later, Gordon received a report for a physical and another report for induction into the draft. But Gordon said, no, <laughs> I'm not going. I'm a conscientious objector, first of all. Yeah, well, that was the thing. He's like, I've already received my conscientious objector status. Mm -hmm. And then you, like, denied it because I was Japanese and couldn't serve anyways. Mm -hmm. And then I've done all of this stuff and now you want me to join the draft? Mm -hmm. No. Um, and he just didn't show up to either. Gordon was then arrested for draft evasion and decided that he was tired of court cases and would just serve out his time. Gordon was convicted of draft resistance and served nine months in the federal penitentiary on McNeil Island. Hmm. After being released from prison, Gordon returned to the University of Washington to finish his bachelor's degree in sociology. He then went on to graduate school and received his Ph.D. in sociology in 1952. Gordon taught in Beirut, Lebanon, and Cairo, Egypt until he returned to North America to teach at the University of Alberta and served as the chair of sociology from 1970 to 1975. Wonder why he didn't go back to America. Right. After being an, a citizen and being treated like that. Gordon retired in 1983. Shortly after retiring, a team of lawyers reopened his conviction on the basis of governmental misconduct and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of Gordon and vacated his conviction in 1987. Hmm. Gordon Hirabayashi died on January 2nd, 2012, at 93 years old. Wow. In May 2012, so four months later, Gordon was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama. Wow. It's crazy that it, you know, it all took that long to... To vacate his conviction. Right. And to, for the courts to realize, like, oh, yeah, this is... Oh, yeah, that was really messed up of us. Yeah, yeah. Mm. No. He was a cool dude, though. Yeah. I just feel bad that he still had to spend so much time in jail. Right. But... And, and just trying to get there, like... Like, the integrity of that guy, you know? Yeah. To be like, no, yeah, the federal correctional facility officer, or whatever they're called, you know? We're just like, okay, but you better show up, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, and then the guy takes two weeks and he gets there and then, yeah, it's just, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around nowadays, like, imagining, imagine, oh, yeah, like that would never happen Yeah, today. they're like, no, 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 we'll make sure you get there. <laughs> yeah. We will spend 
every last dime we have to make sure you get there. It kind of seems like a lot of these guys didn't want to be doing their jobs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, they totally didn't agree with it. Yeah, and he's like, well, how about I go to Tucson and I'll I'll, I'll get there. Don't make, you worry yeah. about me. And they're like, you seem like a trustworthy dude. Yeah. This seems legit. Yeah, this, this, yeah exactly. Yeah, and he was. And yeah. he was. Yeah. And he was actually like an honest person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That never should have been punished for this. He was right. an American citizen. Yeah. Through and through. Yeah. Even more so than just being born in America, he was like obviously a true American, like fighting for his constitutional rights and right. doing what he right. knew was right. right. Well, and so one of the, oh, so one of the things I wanted to touch on but I didn't earlier was like in in constitutional law, one of the biggest things is like you learn that there's like rights to citizens. Right, mm-hmm. and then there's also rights enumerated in the Constitution for people, like just right. like you don't have to be just just uh, being born a human being, you get you have, these rights. Yep, exactly, and and so that's that's you know kind of one of the coolest things about our Constitution is how we as a country still recognize these rights of people who are not citizens. Yeah, or should we should. <laughs> right right like the constitution recognizes it but then we as the sometimes less than stellar individuals and government officials try to take them away mm-hmm. and we uh twist later find out that they're unconstitutional and, and, right my sources for this story are gordon hirabayashi by churston m lyon the courage of their convictions by peter h irons Confinement and Ethnicity, an Overview of World War II Japanese-American Relocation Sites by J. Burton, M. Farrell, F. Lord, and R. Lord. Hmm. All right. Presidential trivia. Which dog pantsed the French ambassador and had to be sent away from the White House? It was Theodore Roosevelt's dog. Nice. Theodore Roosevelt had a dog named Pete that was a mix of Boston Terrier, Bull Terrier, and a Bulldog, and was said to be Roosevelt's favorite dog. <laughs> Just a big old bully mutt dog. Yeah. One day, Pete chased the French ambassador down a hallway and then ripped the bottom of his pants off when he caught up to him. The French were not very happy about their French ambassador being treated that way, mm-hmm. and in order to not jeopardize U.S. relations with France... Pete was banned from the White House and was sent to live at the Roosevelt family home in New York. Oh, well, I could see that. Theodore Roosevelt, Rough Rider. Oh, yeah. Apparently, those, that was not the first person that Pete attacked at the White House. He would, like, bark and chase people all the time, but Theodore Roosevelt thought it was funny. So. So, until it came to be like, oh, hey, we should not mess up, like, our relations with, the, with France over yeah. this dog. Yeah. <laughs> and that's when he finally got sent away. Oh, poor dog. Probably not poor dog. He probably still lived a great life in New York. Oh, yeah. Roosevelt's were rich. He had a great time. (laughs) Nothing like a (laughs) pair of sweet French linens between the teeth, though, you know. I'm so happy that Jeremy's back. We're able to release new episodes for you guys. Yeah. Have a happy St. Patrick's Day for everybody that's celebrating that. And if you want some sweet merchandise, check out americathebazaar.com forward slash shop. Yes. And we hope you guys stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay stay weird, weird, America. America.